Good morning, VCF. Uh, welcome to uh, Fall Conference as well as our Sunday service. Uh, we've been looking at the wilderness and speaking about how the wilderness is a finite amount of time, a time for those of us who are Christians, by which God takes Egypt out of us and prepares us to be conquerors in the Promised Land. He has to convert us from being slaves in bondage to the uh, uh, imprisonments of sin and uh, unhealth and disease uh, in our world. And, he has, and what he does is that he puts his own life in us and he brings to death our old life. And the Red Sea is a picture of that. He covers us with the cloud, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit, that we are in him, and takes us through this journey. Uh, the wilderness is an uncomfortable sometimes, uh, sometimes an uncomfortable period of our life, but it is in, in many ways finite. Uh, there are, of course, many rounds in which we go through wilderness and a promised land, and there are many rounds of these things, but uh, we can think of it in terms of a process by which God is preparing us for our destiny. And so we've been speaking about that and how God in the wilderness is healing us, he's curing us, he's digging out things that are in us that were off, off Egypt and putting his own substance in us. And so we've been speaking about that. We spoke about Hosea, um, Hosea's prophecy to the nation of Israel and how when the nation of Israel had entered into the promised land, they had forgotten and lost all that God had done uh, in their lives in the, in the wilderness. And they had, as... Deuteronomy 8 uh, prophesied, uh, settled into a sort of a knowing, uh, a shallow knowing of God uh, and, and lost their knowledge of God. In many ways, the, the, the wilderness was a period in which the knowledge of God would be built into the children of Israel, a preparation of God, of the knowing of God, not just cognitive knowing, not just knowing in the head, not just knowing information about God, but knowing Him deeply in such a way that that solid knowing uh, would be uh, more solid than the giants that they would be facing in the wilderness. So we were speaking about this. So I'd like to, for one more, uh, one more go, uh, read Deut Deuteronomy chapter 8. And uh, we will continue. Uh, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Yeah, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know that what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, that humbling was to actually cause us to have self-knowledge. Uh, verse 3, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So this is a peculiar kind of knowing um, the, the Hebrew word for knowing, yadat, or knowledge, uh, da'at, uh, they're all very related, has to do with the way in which God is wanting to put knowing in us, in the nation of Israel, so that they will, know, they will also be able to know every word that proceeds out, the, out of the mouth of God, and to be able to live on that word, and not upon any other word. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your food, 
foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So we are, we are a people of promise and God promises this in some form to us. Uh, you can take this as a promise of God that we are a people of promise. We are not just a people of process, but we are people of promise as well. Take care lest you forget your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flock multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant. We will talk about this today. They'll confirm his covenant. There's a covenant underlying all that process. There's a covenant underlying all the things that we go through, and he wants to confirm it, make it solid in our lives. This covenant that he swore to his fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations, like the Lord, uh, like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are present here to make solid everything that we've heard in words. We ask you that even now that you will do that miracle by which words will be con con converted into substance, that the substance of God will be ours, Lord. We thank you. We remember the words of Jesus that said that he has and is far greater and far more than the manna that the children of Israel uh, ate in the wilderness, that we could actually eat of something more real, more eternal, and that is of him. And so we ask you that you would feed us now, Lord, with more than manna, feed us with yourself. And so we commit ourselves in your hands, in Jesus' name. Amen. I, we were talking about the knowledge of God, about how knowing God becomes built into us. In fact, what God does is that in the wilderness, he strips us of everything that we were before. He strips us of all the pride and all the the things that we, uh, we had as an identity in Egypt as slaves, and he builds us up from scratch again in some ways. The, the Red Sea, as I said, is a picture of that way in which we die to self. So that uh, Christianity is not at root a self-improvement 
uh, religion. It is a way in which a radical thing has happened, that Christ has broken on the cross everything that held us, everything that is of us that is diseased and that is in bondage. He has destroyed all the germs of that, that spiritual disease and He has made us new, not by patching us up, but by killing the old self. And so we saw this, and, uh, and one of the things that um, had to do with the knowledge of God uh, we saw had to do with God allowing us to hunger for Him and then feeding us. There's another thing that God uh, wanted to deal with, with the children of Israel, that was a block, a hindrance to the knowledge of God. And that was pride. And so here it says in verse 2, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you, there you go, and let your hunger, and let your hunger, sorry, and fed, let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know, know something. Know the word that comes out of God, he said, so that you will know not, that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So there's this thing that God wants to do again and again. He says, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. I want you to know me. Because if you know me, not just cognitive, not just in your head as words, but if you know me through your experience in such a way that that knowledge causes you to be one with me, and that's what really know means, become one with God. Uh, sometimes uh, people use the theological word theosis, which is the fact that amazing miracle that, that even though we do not become God, we become one with God, so that God's godness is, is impacted into us, it is pressed into us, and become, and become constituted to be our new nature. Uh, what God wants to do is to have, cause that, that kind of knowledge of God to be taken into the promised land. If we don't have that knowledge of God and we only have words and concepts, what we will do is that we will find that the, the giants that are solid in themselves will meet with our own lack of solid, solid knowledge of God, of substance, and we will crack and we will break and shatter in the promised land. And so what God wants to do is to cause us to have a knowing of God. This, how do I actually become one with God? That's the question we want to know uh, answers from. And so we saw that he, he says he humbles us. The humbling process is one of those things that we don't really like to, to hear about because of the fact that we actually, I believe in, I think, uh, sorry for, me, for speaking about the West so much, but I think in the West we have a culture that makes pride somehow take different forms and get hidden and covered up by a lot of our societal values that can sometimes uh, take greater prominence than the issue that we have and that is of pride. Uh, and so I think that's, there's something about that that we want to look at. In, when we come to Hosea, we find that Hosea uh, was the nation of Israel several hundred years later in the Promised Land who had lost the knowledge of God and had become uh, corrupted and he had become um, bereft of God. And what God wanted to do is to cure them because they had lost the knowledge of God. They had be, uh, committed spiritual adultery. And what God had to do was to take them back into the wilderness, take them back into the wilderness in which they could know God. 
And so I want to talk a little bit about that. And for us to do that, uh, if you can turn with me again to uh, uh, Hosea that we looked at uh, yesterday, Hosea chapter 2, we will look at the condition, the state of the nation of Israel way after they had entered the promised land, but had not held on to the knowledge of God. And I want to put it to you that uh, pride was a big part of it. Pride prevented the knowledge of God. Okay? And uh, we will look at it from chapter 2. We'll read it from verse 8. And she did not know, he says. Right? Same word. Same word, yada. She did not yada that I was the one who gave the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished her with silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take it back. And what we said yesterday is this. The children of Israel's knowledge of God was fuzzy, it was faulty, and it was filled with their own pride. What do I mean by pride? I will explain that uh, in, in, in a few moments. But I want, want us to just focus on this. That they did not have the discernment, they could not distinguish between God and their own efforts. They could not distinguish between God's provision and their efforts to actually make it happen. And therefore, in verse, uh, uh, I think it's verse 12, the second part, uh, I will lay waste her wines and her fig trees of which she said. Verse 9, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. What God says is, I'm going to let you know where's me. I will let you know where I am so that you will be able to discern my hand. Because you are so confused between your own efforts, between your own blessings and what I have done, that you can't find me. You can't find my presence. You don't know it. Because your pride has taken over because you've taken credit for a lot of things. You've taken credit for all the blessings that I have. But it's more important for you to not have the affirmation of taking credit, but it's more important for you to know and discern where I am in your life. Because if you don't know where I am, you will be lost without me. And so God in His love says, I'm going to take all these back to remove that factor from your equation so that you know what's left. So that you know that it was not your, your, your effort or your attractiveness or your own beauty or your own magnificence that you could take pride for, for at, but it was me. And by doing so, I'm not here to just hurt you, but I'm here so that you can know me, so that you can know where I am, so that when you, when you face the giants, you know where the mighty God is. Okay, so here's, here, here, here's uh, what God does. He takes it into the wilderness. I will take back my grain in its time, my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax. Now I will uncover your lewdness, so I'll strip it so that you will know exactly where you stand. Like I'll take away the matrix. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her from her hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbath that have become completely conflated with their own look at me culture. That has been conflated with you and all your sources of other help besides me. And I'm going to take those away. I'm going to bring them to an end so much so that you will know that those things never really were supporting you. And I will lay waste, verse 12, her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages. I like that. 
which my lovers have given me. I will give them a forest. I know in America we, we, uh, we pride ourselves in the Protestant work ethic. You, you sow what you, you reap, what you sow. You work hard, you get it. So if you get blessed, that means because you work hard. You got blessed because you're smart. You got blessed because you are whatever, you're well-connected or you, are, you have all these resources that you have. Uh, you, you take pride in these things. And what God was saying is this, look, you are saying that your achievements are your wages. You earned it. And we are filled in our culture with ways of thinking in which we are blinded to our pride by a certain culture that causes us to legitimize pride. Now, there are these things that are in culture that maybe I'll, I'll list off a few things that may help us to understand this. We bristle when someone does not name us properly or give us the proper title. We bristle when people don't address us with the proper honorific term that we should have. Now, there is something legitimate about that. I'm not saying that we should be, be careless and disrespectful to one another, but there is something that we understand here in our culture, and that is that respect should be given where respect is due. Now, that is a legitimate value. But what happens is that pride is this illegitimate little weasel that hides under those things. And so you can, in full pride, bristle at anybody who doesn't give you respect. And you may be, uh, you may be valid in your, your criticism, but your little weasel is in there. It's called pride. And with that pride, you don't know what God is doing to deal with you. And so we saw in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that he says, I humble you. Whether the reason why you feel bristly or feel offended is legitimate or not, that's not the issue. The point is this, I am humbling you. And there are going to be times in which we experience such humbling. Now, as a Christian, I will gain more by God if I accept the humbling and not stay on my self-legitimizing blindness by which I complain about that. Complain if I must, yes, go ahead and complain. But don't forget about the little weasel that's there. Does that make sense? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not uh, legitimizing people who don't give us respect. But what I'm saying is this. In your, in your legitimate complaint about people who don't respect you, you must know the weasel because if the weasel is there, is there, it will prevent you from understanding your true value and what God has done in your life. So there's that. There, there are ways in which we boast. And, I, uh, and I'm always t- talking to people from Africa and Asia and India and, and uh, South America. And one of the things that uh, many of them say that is cringeworthy for them is the amount of boasting that Americans do and without batting an eyelid. There is this kind of culture of self-confidence and a certain freedom, which actually I like. I think I, 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 I come from a culture that is too, uh, uh, too humble to the point of being an affectation. And so there's something healthy about Americans' ability to talk about themselves in such a way that without batting an eyelid, they say, well, I'm good at this, I'm good at that. At that. I remember talking with, coming to America and just hearing people at, uh, when, in, in seminary talking about their, 
ministry achievements. And I used to really feel uncomfortable about it. I don't feel that anymore. But I wonder sometimes how we can, in our own culture of self-promotion or self-affirmation or standing up for ourselves, not realize that underneath it, lots underneath that legitimate and, 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 and valid um, um, value, we actually have pride hiding there. And I want to be conscious of the fact that while I have a legitimate right to hold on to those, those societal values that we have in the West, that there are, I have, I have a, a weasel that's hiding. And I must find that weasel. Because that weasel will constantly make me think that it's my wages, Hosea chapter 2, verse uh, 12, 13. It's my wages. I deserve this. And because I deserve it, I, I say, it's not God who got it to me. It's my fully deserving stuff. We talk about ego strength, and I realize that, uh, especially even in sport, ego strength is a very, very important, important thing. The ego strength is the opposite of a certain flimsiness of character, a flimsiness of heart, a weakness of heart, that um, uh, many sports psychologists would, uh, would want to have built up as, an, as a healthy thing. But there, is way, there are ways in which we, as, 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 as a people, um, have to be aware about that. And uh, lots of stuff actually hides behind a certain self-confidence. I'm all for self-confidence. And sometimes the most humble thing for us is to be self-confident. But there is a way in which um, uh, commercials and advertising can sometimes... Um, talk about the brilliant car, the expensive car that you so deserve, or that particular thing, pro that product that they want to sell that's really expensive that you so deserve. And so there's a way in which what that does is that um, it, it causes us to pay attention more to the superficial values and not be able to see that what's happening is that we are actually being blinded from knowledge. Um, when we are unequally treated by friends, when friends actually treat other people better and more favoured than us, we have often a legitimate right to feel um, marginalised by them or, by, or not fairly treated by them. And sometimes what, that, what can happen is that we can be caught up in that offence in such a way that, that it prevents us from actually allowing God to deal with us. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, what God is basically saying is this, I have more important things for you. And the process by which I'm going to cause you to know me is to look to me and not to do these things because I am doing a work that's humbling you. I found that this is a very important thing for my own life. Um, I, I, I never realized that there were these elements of pride in my own life, uh, pride that I got from my position, my so-called achievements. And so I remember when I first came to America and started a very, very small church out of a very small number of people, I found myself bristling at the smallness, the kind of a podunkness of our own existence. 
And I found myself reaching out to old ways of legitimizing myself every time I compared myself with other people, other churches. And it was in this place that God brought me into a deeper place in in which God began to, 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 to put in me a knowledge that what's important is none of that stuff. And that is what God is wanting to do in me. And I realized the pride that was in me that uh, had me bristling those few years. And then there would be people in my church who would come to me and say, you should be speaking to thousands of people, you should be speaking to crowds. But when God had done that work in me, I found myself not moved at all, not impressed by all that kind of stuff that uh, I would have been impressed in in my 20s and 30s. So I just want to look at this. There is something in us, all of us, and I'm going to call it a Now, let me see. I'm not sure whether I, I should say this. Yeah, I'm going to say it. It's called a WTM scale. Okay? Every one of us has a center right there where your stomach is, just above, your, above your, your belly button. There's a thing there. It's a round thing. It looks like a clock. It's called a WTM scale. And WTM means what they think of me. Okay? What they think of me. We all have this WTM scale. It's inside there. The doctors will not be able to tell you that, tell you that, that, that they will not be able to find it to you, but it's there. I tell you, I tell you, it's very much there. It's the center of your existence. It's a what they think of you, what they think of me scale. It's WTM scale for short. Okay. And the WTM scale has a way in which every, every day it's always active. Someone does not recognize you, it kind of goes down. But we and, the, and, this, and sometimes when somebody affirms you or somebody does, does you know, recognizes something good, it goes up. It's, it's, it's good. It's not, not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be used badly by the devil. But now the thing about it is at the center of this scale, it is governed by a certain algorithm. Okay? You didn't know that? You didn't know that? Oh, I, I will inform you. It's, called, it's an algorithm. It's called what you call a personal profile. Now, what a personal profile is, is a, 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 a very oversimplified list of things about you or me that are deemed relevant to the WTM scale. Okay? So the profile is a reduced and oversimplified form that tells you or other people, actually tells the world, who you are. And you can be summarized and reduced to this profile. The profile and the WTM scale, the what they think of me scale, goes very, 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 very much hand in hand together. And it is active. It's the most active thing in your body. It's more active than all the, 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 the blood that's flowing through your veins. It is the WTM scale. For some people, it is a bit more active. Sometimes when people go through depression, they don't care anymore and it just goes... Sometimes when we are, when we are anxious, it goes... Other than that... It's always active. And there's a way in which our knowledge of ourselves, our sense of God and everything is seen through this WTM scale, this what they think of me scale. And I just wonder sometimes how we can use that WTM scale to look to, and look through that lens at everything that's going on. Because everything that matters is what people think about me. And what God says is this, there's one thing that 
is hindering the knowledge of you, and that is that you can't tell that it is me who is blessing you. And you can't discern when the time comes. So if you sit for an exam and you do really well, and your WTM scale goes up, and your profile is somehow kind of governing all that, and then you go for your next exam, you can't take the solidity, the solid knowledge that God helped you in your exam with you to the next exam because you forgot. Because you somehow rationalized it to yourself that it was your wages, your wages, your attractiveness, your talent, your gifts, your good whatever it is, your, your character, your holiness, your religiosity, all that, that actually made that happen. And that's why how sometimes people can go through the wilderness and be humbled and God blesses them. You can see a situation in Hosea where the nation of Israel was really blessed by God during Jehu's time, during Ahab's time before him and, and another king in between them. You can see that all that's happening and God is blessing because he loves us. He loves us nevertheless, even though we, we mis, mispronounce and we, uh, we, we mis, uh, mis, uh, misguide ourselves about where that, that help comes from. But what happens is that in the midst of that, in the midst of God's humility, we are deceived by his, his humility. We are deceived by our own pride. And so the wilderness is the place where God brings the nation of Israel in Hosea out to begin to retrain them. And the first thing he does is that he takes away all that help. Some of you may be experiencing this, a way in which it seems like today, there isn't that easy blessing that, that was there before. Everything's hard now. And what God is doing is this. He's bringing us out. He's humbling us. Not because He's malicious towards us, but because He loves us. And I wonder whether that is something that God wants to, to deal with. Let's go a little bit deeper. In, uh, if you keep your finger in uh, Hosea, um, God speaks to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we'll look at this. And then he says, Verse 3, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that your fathers did not know, so that you will know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth, mouth of the God. God. Verse 4, your clothing will not wear out. Verse 5, know then, then okay, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. You know, there is a difference between the pride that a child feels towards his or her father or mother and the kind of pride that we cling on to when we have not had the experience or where we don't have the love of the father. God says, I'm humbling you as a father. And there's nothing more humble than a child with a father or mother. I remember our children, when they were very, very small, they would play on the jungle gym or what I, whatever you call that kind of a thing, slides and kind of climbing things. I remember all my children when they were like 
two or three years old. They would climb and they would climb higher and they would say, are you impressed, Daddy? Are you impressed, Mommy? And we'll say, yeah, we're very, very impressed. And then we'll say, I'm now, f- I, I was just meeting Esme uh, uh, and she was there and I said, how old are you? And she says, I'm four years old. I said, wow, four years old. And she f- glowed with pride that she was four years old. And I thought that she was, she was, she was so tall. There is a legitimate sense of affirmation that a child has when her father, I'm not her father, but I, I'm kind of a, like a strange old man that she knows in church. But there's something of that wonderful kind of innocent kind of sense of self that comes when a lower wants to please a higher. That a lower realizes that a higher is pleased with them. There's something about a little child that wants to please the parent that is pure, that is wonderful, and it has, is full of confidence. It is full of humility. You know why? Because the child knows that when it comes to impressing anybody, nobody can be impressed in that true way as your, pa- your father, your mother. My children know that whenever they, they, they achieve something, the first thing, the first people who want to know about it are the parents. And sometimes the parents can be a little boastful about it and we'll deal with that and God will deal with that also. But uh, there's a way in which the, it is legitimate, it is beautiful for a child to be as that before the father. And that's what God was saying when he says, I'm humbling you. You have something better than the, than the free market to boast yourself to. There's something more than the open market that which you need to sell yourself to and get wages so that you can feel good about yourself. I have a good identity. There's someone more, more important, and that's me. That is I, your father. And I don't care about whether you fail or not. I am making you so that you will have the promise. I have ambitions for you. My ambitions are better than what the open market can have for you. The open market doesn't care for you. The open market doesn't care. It only wants to read your, 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 um, your, um, your profile. It only wants to read your WTM, what, what, what they think of, uh, about you. They don't care about you. And when you live for that, it's going to kill you. It's going to kill you. Pride is a way of, of us manifesting the lack of the knowledge of God as our father, as our parent. And I want to put it to you that what God was speaking about humbling has nothing to do with us subjugating our pride or subjugating our ego or, or damaging our ego. That's not what God is. God is a father. He says, that's good, but I know you can do better. Now, many of us are hurt by that. Many of us, because you don't have the knowledge of God as a father, you are hurt when you are corrected. When you, you are hurt, when under the guise of many of the societal values, your pride is hurt. But if you have God as your father, I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, don't worry. Somebody is watching over you. And when you fail, and you're defeated, or even when you show your sin, or you show your failings, the Lord who loves you unconditionally as a father, 
doesn't see you any different. You can compare yourself with other people on the open market and wonder why some people who are getting blessed with a house or getting blessed with a nice car are being blessed and you can feel terrible about it because you don't know the love of the Father. When I was growing up, uh, my parents were always very fair. It didn't always seem so because sometimes they would give gifts to one child and the other child did not know why that child got something and, and, they, and, and the other one didn't. But we always knew because of that security in my father and mother's love that whenever one of our siblings got something, we can look forward to something that would be perhaps different but more appropriate to who we were, more appropriate to our condition, uh, our, our development as a child. Does that make sense? That it's important that, that we understand that when God humbles us, it is not because he hates pride in and of itself, but what, that, what pride does is that it causes us to not know him, not know how good he is. It causes us to, have, uh, to be afflicted with all kinds of hurts when other people are compared with, with you or other people are compared with uh, other people's blessing is compared with your seeming lack of it. If you know that God is your father, every time you see a brother being blessed or a sister being blessed with something, something that, was, that you don't have, you can start licking your lips because you know that your father, if he can do that for my sister or do that for my brother, wow, what will he do for me? I remember when we were very poor, uh, when we first started in, 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 in America, uh, we went to Hawaii and uh, Brad Wong uh, was, the, uh, 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 was the leader of the IV chapter in uh, Hawaii. And, uh, you know, IV staff don't necessarily earn tons of money. But he was blessed. We were in the car and he was saying, you know what, we bought a house. And he said, this is how we got the, we got the house. And he talked about how God really did miracle, miracle, miraculous things. We could not, in, the, in our wildest dreams, even have a little podunk house. But when I heard Brad speak about how God blessed him, Cindy and I were so encouraged because we know we have the same father. And he's no respecter of persons. But because he loves us individually, he will give us meat in its due season at the right time. It was not long before we bought our house. And uh, praise God for that. I want to put it to you that when Deuteronomy says, as a father disciplines the son, as a child, and remember, we are defining sons in the same way as we define daughters, those in which God has a destiny for and is preparing and is discipling and is shaping and grooming for something really great. Yeah? That's what we mean. As a father disciplines his son, so I discipline you. The whole rubric of the wilderness is the fact that sometimes you will go through a situation where other people are being blessed and you wonder, what about me? Why? What happened to me? And if you don't understand wilderness as a time where the father speaks intimately with the son or the daughter, you will not know that actually God has more intimate, more precious things for you, but he has to prepare you so that those things will not destroy you. And so turn with me, please, to back to, to uh, Hosea chapter 2. Perhaps uh, you are already there. Um, Hosea chapter 2. 
And so this is how God was dealing with uh, the children of Israel uh, under Hosea. The, the nation of Israel that were turned peculiarly in a diseased way back into themselves, back into their own image, in the, back to the way in which they are appearing to others, and what others thought of them. They, it was, everything was about them. And what God wants to do is to heal them. What he wanted to do was to heal them. And we speak about the healing in a, in, a, in, a, in a few moments. And so in this place, he draws us out to, the, um, to the, the wilderness. And as we spoke about uh, that yesterday, we talked about a door of hope. And suddenly, before God begins to restore the blessing back to us, he puts within us a door of hope. Now, if you go to the valley of Okoy, you, you would not have seen a door of hope. You would not have seen any physical door. You will only have seen the sand. But if you've gone to the valley of Achor with spiritual eyes and you were going through this period where God was stripping you and bringing you to the wilderness, what God was doing was causing you to come to a point where you claim no wages, you claim no deserving of any of the blessings. You claim no credit for any of this and you give all glory to God. Yeah, give all glory to God so that um, uh, God begins to heal us. Therefore, in verse 14, he said, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. You see, it all comes from the tender speaking of God. When you've repented and you've not chased after those things, God puts within you Invisible things that are solid. And before long, and he speaks tenderly to you in the wilderness. And this is what the wilderness is about. is God speaking tenderly to you and me. To speak it so softly that only you can hear it. And sometimes when he speaks to you, he only, it's a secret that only you can hear. But you have to be listening and cocking your ear closely enough to hear it because he only wants to speak in whispers. And only those who are listening carefully will be able to hear it. Others who have a shallow heart will not be able to hear it. And so what happens is this. Uh, God, God says to, goes to them, um, I will lure her and there will be a, a, a door of hope. And I found that in the midst of these wilderness situations, the situation looks, seems to be still the same. Compared with other people, I still look like I'm in the, down in the dumps. But there is a door of hope there. And I can sense it so clearly. And I know that I know, and I know that the devil knows that I know that there is hope there. And I'm going through this door of hope. And this door of hope is a narrow door. It's not for everybody else. It's my door. It's the door that God made for me and has my name on it. And nobody who has, has another name can go through that door. And that door, that peculiar dealing of the Lord, that peculiar, peculiar stripping and humbling of the Lord is going to heal me. And he says, I will, and, and, uh, I will, there will be a door of hope there. And there she will answer as in the days of a youth, God says, as at the time when she comes up to the land of, of Egypt. And what God is saying is this, when she was young, she knew how to answer me. Uncomplicated by her, her status. Uncomplicated by where, how people should treat her. And daddy will answer me just like this. Daddy, are you impressed? Daddy? 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 Did you see what I did? Daddy? And... I, I, as a parent, know this very, very well from my own children. And this is the, 
the, the, the relationship that God brings us there. And when that happens, you will find that things begin to connect again. And this is the part I really want to share with you. And this is what's going to happen. For I will remove verse 7, sorry, verse 16. I've got to, got to read verse 16 as well. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Not my Baal, not my master. You will know that your husband is the prime relationship with me. You will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. See, because all the other things that, 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 that interface with our own WTM, our own profile, are masters over us. We want to make that profile good. Please, people, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. That means the Baal hook will be unhooked from you. You'll be unhooked from it. You'll be freed from it. And they shall be remembered by name no more. So much so that, that there's disease in us that's constantly people-pleasing so that our WTM will go up, our profile will get better, that all that will be removed, that people-pleasing. Then, verse 38, verse uh, 18, And I will make them a covenant on this day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the arrow, sorry, the bow, the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth to you forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in, in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord and you shall be intimate with the Lord. You will be one with the Lord. But what he says is this, there's this covenant that's underlying all this. And that is the covenant that we saw in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 8 when he said, when God says, I will, I will uh, give you power to get wealth, that I will confirm your covenant with me that I swore to your fathers. Deut Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 18. You will remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to his fathers as it is in this day. Now, what is this covenant? The covenant is this, that God makes a covenant to us and that covenant to us is a covenant he makes to the earth, to the cosmos, in such a way that the ecology of the cosmos, but also the ecology of economy, the ecology of people around you, the ecology of social traffic, the ecology of family, the ecology of education, the ecology of business and, 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 and the environment, the, the, the man-made environment around you, has a covenant with God by which God guides these things around you. That is what Deuteronomy chapter 8 is talking about. He says that I have a, a covenant made, that I made with you and this covenant is validated when I bless you and you will be profitable. So I'm not one who believes that there is a, a sound theology in which Christians don't have that kind of thing. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot divorce theology from the generosity of God's person. And if you never experience that, you will form your theology based upon a God of poverty. But God is generous. He wants to give and give and He's infinitely generous. If you just think about that one thing, your theology will change. Because you have no idea about what infinite, infinite generosity is. But what God say, is saying here is this, I make a covenant, you come back to me and the earth will be changed. Your fields will be changed. What had happened was that um, King Jehu had murdered and had slaughtered the generation of, of the family of the king before, before him, 
and Ahab's family, okay, uh, sorry, Jezebel's family. He had murdered them and had spilled the blood on Jezreel, Jezreel. And Jezreel is, means God sows. And what had happened is that he had sowed into the land, instead of God's things, the blood of these people. These people were bad, they were oppressive, but God held him accountable for the slaughter and the massacre that he had done, even if <coughs> those people were bad. The family of Jezebel was bad and Ahab was bad. But, he, but God says, you have sown into that and you have sown seeds in spirit into the land that was wrong. And sometimes we can, by our sin, sow into the land blood. And when God says, you come back to me and you come back to me and don't, don't take credit for everything and, and then become one and you, you, I will begin to sow back into Jezreel and it will no longer be the field of blood but it will be Jezreel, Jezreel, that is God's souls. And that's what it means here. So that when your soul will not be blocked by barrenness, when you do the natural things, there will be natural and supernatural bounty that will come out of that. That's why you find in Psalm 67, Psalm 85, it always happens the land will yield its increase. That's normal. Sometimes wilderness feels not normal. But that's only temporary because what God wants to do is to set our heart right so that he can validate the covenant. That's what Deuteronomy 8 was all about. Validate the covenant so that there is a covenant that we as human beings, as a people of God, can make with, the, with God that will affect the earth. It's a covenant that is godly. Not a covenant that is the earth in and of itself, but a, girl, a covenant that's godly. And what God says is this, when that happens, you may be still down. Suddenly, things happen. And have you noticed that when you've repented? Oh, the interviewer calls you back. Oh, money comes. Oh, that person you had a problem with suddenly forgives you. Oh, things relationally begin to come together. And if you haven't experienced that, wait for it. It will. You continue to stay in that place. Sometimes it takes days. Sometimes it takes days. And so that's why in chapter 3, I, I, I like to, to, to um, just finish off here. In chapter 3, he said, here's the treatment. Okay? Here's the treatment. How does it actually work? The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. You see, the cakes of raisins were the opposite, the counterpart, the, the countertype for manna. Manna was to sustain them, and the bread of life was to feed them with God himself. But the cakes of raisins were cakes that the, the, the generation of, uh, of the Phoenicians and Jezebel's uh, people brought into Israel through the, the, the temples of uh, Baal and Asherah, and the idea was that, uh, um, that Asherah and Baal would copulate. And when they copulate, the rain would come. And Jezebel had been very successful in bringing such rain to her, her nation, Tyre and Sidon. Um, and, the, and, and King Ahab wanted to bring that technology in. He wanted to bring that resource and that knowledge in. And he... And he syncretized the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. It's not that he didn't worship Yahweh anymore. He just brought it together. He brought in the, te the technology and he did not know as a result of that, where's God? 
And God had to bring them out to the, to the wilderness. And he, and he says, you will not go for the raisin cakes. Because the raisin cakes were what all the children of Israel ate to buy into it. The raisins were a picture of the wine and the fruitfulness. So that would encourage Baal and Asherah to copulate. And so as a, as a result of that, they had an alternate fu- fruitfulness that, that muddied the water and caused God to be pushed out. Not completely gone out of place, but God was confounded and confused and conflated with all the other gods. And so as a result of that, what, what God is saying is this. Here's the cure. You stop eating raisin cakes. You stop depending upon the resources of the world or looking to people in the world as your answer. Not even people in the church. You will be alone with me. This is what he says. Okay? Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man in the same way that God betrothed himself to us who are spiritual whores and, 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 and impure and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to gods and love cakes of raisin. So I, brought, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lectac of um, barley. And I said to her, first thing, you must dwell as mine for many days. No, only me. You don't see anybody else. You don't hanker after other gods. Don't watch pictures of things that are attractive. Do not flirt around. To, in fact, in this period of wilderness, the cure and the healing will happen only when you are alone with me and you have no other recourse. And there are some times in which you are away from your friends or your people that you depend upon. He says, this is the cure. I'm doing something more. You will have your friends. You will have your society. But for many days, you will dwell as mine for many days. To me, to dwell means to abide, stay a long time, consistently, until it's very consistent, until it's in you. At first, it's just here and there. Sometimes you have these spiritual epiphanies and you're just very spiritual and then you slide off and then you have another spiritual epiphany and you come to church perhaps and then you got the, the message touches you and then you go back to your old, old self. But God says, you're going to dwell. Dwell means consistency. And I'm going to put it into you. And, and, and you will dwell with me. Um, and as you dwell in me, you will not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. It will be as if I belong to you alone, God says. I commit myself to you as if I'm, you are the only one in my, in my, in my view. So I will be of you, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince. And so what God was saying is this, those symbols of power, those symbols of advocacy, you will dwell many days without them. What does it look like? It looks like a wilderness. It looks like a wilderness. You won't have the advocates that can, can advocate for your profile. You won't have any of those things that will make your MTM go higher. But in that silence, in that silence in which sometimes you feel you want to tear your hair out, that will appear to you, I promise you, says God, a door of hope. I'll speak tenderly to you and you can hear my whisper. And by doing that, I will heal your spirit. I'll heal your soul. And no more will Baal be on your lips. 
Amen? There's much more to say about this, but I want to say that God wants to make a covenant and cause a turning point to happen in our lives. He says, Israel will dwell many days. Um, he, will, he will dwell many days without king, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household goods. I wonder whether that's happening to us as a church, you know, during COVID-19. No electrical instruments. <laughs> we have to abide with not too many amens to affirm us. No ephod. Some people have no pastor. Some people have no church to go to physically. And he says, I'm healing you. I'm healing you. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord. Now, that's really important. Return and seek the Lord. If you seek the Lord without returning, your knowledge of God will be shallow. And that's what God's, God keeps on saying in, in Hosea. For example, in Hosea chapter 17, chapter 7, he says, They do not cry to me from the heart, but they, will wail, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. And they gash themselves, they rebel against me, though I train and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. What God is saying is this, your heart is shallow. Your heart is shallow because your heart goes only as far as what you have lost and what you want to find back. I'm going to give you this. You don't understand how much I want to give you these things. But your heart is shallow because you're wailing in your bed. You're not returning with your heart. And what God says is this, you will return to me. What that means is this, when we pray to the Lord, yeah, I, want you to, I, want, I want to suggest to you, you just praise and worship Him and wait upon Him. Don't worry about praying for all those things that you need. There will come a time for that and God knows what you need. But how about doing this? A rarefied, unique experience in which your time with God is one in which you're just worshipping and praising Him for him. Because if you get oneness with God, it is better than getting all the raisin cakes and, and all the other um, symbols of, uh, of achievement and self-identity self that uh, you could have. And so, God calls us even now to make a covenant. And I want to say that God wants to make a covenant with you and me in the wilderness so that he can cause us to be blessed in the latter end. Let us pray. We welcome you. We welcome you. We welcome you, Lord. We want to return to you. There are some who struggle with comparison with others. And every time you see someone else being blessed, it hurts you. It irks you. And I want you to know that your Father desires for you something even better for you than what you just saw your neighbor have. He has something more it may not be better in material sense, but it will be better for you. And I want to call upon every Christian that is online right now 
and plugging into us to repent, to turn back and devote yourself during this period, COVID-19, to really seeking the Lord. So that our real desire is an upward prayer that we will know Him more than just getting blessed. The blessing will come. God makes a covenant with all your environments, all our environments. And as He does that, things will begin to click. Let's turn to Him right now. Lord, we thank You that You reveal the devil's tricks that are from generation to generation. And we praise You for baptizing us into your son who withstood the test in the wilderness when all the kingdoms of the world were offered to him. Everything. And Lord, he refused. He was the one who, when we can't, then the Israel couldn't, he stood and said, I will worship God alone. And Lord, we thank you right now that we do not stand from the past, our own past, our Israel's past, we stand right now from Jesus' past. Thank you, Lord. You see us, and you're impressed with Jesus. So we ask right now that you will cause us so much to know how to live out of that place of Jesus mm-hmm. because he's already at work in us. Yes, so we Lord. surrender to you, Jesus. We ask right now that you And we would become not about what people think about us, but what does Jesus think about us? Lord, let that be so deep in us right now. Would you do a work? Well, all of us right now are coming to you with knowing how true this speaks to us. May we be baptized into knowing that you are looking at Jesus right now inside of us. Thank you for this conference, God. Thank you for walking a little bit through the wilderness of Israel and seeing all the hardships and how we probably would have done the same thing even now, Lord God. And yet we rely on Jesus and that he gave the final perfect wilderness walk, Lord. Yes, Lord. So we want to return to you. Thank you for the wilderness, Lord. We thank you, Lord. It's the wilderness that distinguishes your people from just successful ones. We thank you, Lord, that it's in the wilderness that you put the mark and the image of yourself upon us. And so we want that, Lord. We want the more excellent things. And so we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.